I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, it is a Saturday morning here in Barcelona, and I am really, really looking forward to interviewing my friend, also a colleague, and someone I greatly respect, Becky Birchall. So I'm going to go ahead and just introduce you, Becky. Becky is an independent arts producer and curator, and she was previously the producer for Bestival and Camp Bestival, two of the UK's most successful outdoor festivals. And if you are British or you've been to a festival in the UK, you know that festivals are incredible in the UK and people are mad for them and they are some of the best in the world. So Becky has created arts experiences that span a wide range of disciplines like theater, circus, spoken word, cabaret, dance, talks, workshops, outdoor spectaculars for the Roundhouse in Camden. If anybody's been to it in London, it's a great one. Glastonbury Festival and the Nest Collective. So that's quite a list of things to have done. In 2015, after becoming a new mum, Becky decided to turn her focus and talents toward the thing she cares about most, which is learning to live in the world in ways that don't cause harm to nature, our climate, or each other. And obviously, this is how we got to know each other. She created Change Festival and launched it in 2019 to bring people together in hope and in action. And we spent a lot of time in 2019 speaking to each other and creating some messaging and language around that and making it, we didn't want it to be a sustainability festival. You didn't want it to be a sustainability festival and I'm all for that. So we worked on languaging that actually helped to make it accessible to everyone to use their imaginations, to imagine better was the theme of that year. And change is coming back in November, 2021 with a different kind of offering. It'll be hybrid, as we've now all learned to operate online and in person, but it's an opportunity for people to actually gather once again at Warwick Arts Centre in England, as well as take part online. And I'm going to be part of the online offering. I'm super excited about that. Curating some sessions, resilience boot camp, and on leading yourself, others, whoever you are. So the aim of Change Festival has always been to celebrate, to inspire, to change the way we relate to one another change our actions, change our preconceptions, our limitations, and change the world. The festival site says we challenge anyone to leave Change Festival without feeling excited, inspired, and more hopeful about our future. Change is experimenting with using the arts as a tool for change and how creativity can support all of us to be innovative, courageous, and caring in the ways we create change, both within our own lives and collectively. Becky says when people are given space and freedom to look at things differently, we will see the future can be bright. We're bombarded with the science and data and evidence that this is no longer a crisis, but an emergency, and it's unavoidable. Artists have helped us to wake up to the urgency and the human impact of the climate emergency, and now we're awake. We have a greater role to play in helping us to see that we are not powerless. So it's about using creativity in the arts as a tool to create a great future because, as Becky has said, as we're going to talk about, and I truly believe, as somebody who's worked in this stuff for a very long time, we do have reasons to be optimistic. Yeah, we have very good reasons to be freaked out. And if you're not freaked out, you're not paying attention. But there is such an opportunity to bring our best selves to the solutions that we create together. So finally, and this is one of my favorite parts of Becky, Becky also lives in a small and unusual village in England run with not-for-profit principles and rents at less than half of market value, the 900-acre estate and 33 houses there all have a single owner, Becky's best friend, Alice Favre. Since moving to the village in 2018, Becky has been working alongside Alice to reimagine the future for the land and the local community. This vision includes a radical redesign of land use, a plan for a new community-owned farm, shop, and cafe, and facilitating a regenerative culture within the village. We're going to be talking about walking the walk and what it's been like to very consciously align Becky's professional life and impact with her passions and values from a very real perspective, because Becky has successfully done just that. So hopefully you're not too bashful after that illustrious introduction of your illustrious career and really beautiful purpose-driven work, but welcome, Becky. 
Thank you, Betsy. It's really, really lovely to be here. And um, yeah, I'm so excited to be following you on this amazing podcast journey as well. So um, congratulations for launching it and for getting it all up and running because it's, yeah, it's amazing the guests that you're interviewing and the people you're getting out to the world. So yeah, it's great to be here. I am embarrassed and bashful and grateful. Yeah, it's my favorite thing to do. I love I love the people I get to speak to. I love the the prospect this is getting out there to people in the world I've never even met. <laughs> it blows my mind that this is possible. Podcasting has been an amazing journey for me. So you know, because you've listened to the podcast, what my first question always is. So what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life and that just shaped who you are and what you do in the world? So I will talk about that moment in a minute, but I'm just going to make a quick segue to say that um, my current uncomfortableness is around a chief which my front teeth, which got knocked out by my daughter dancing at a festival at the beginning of the summer. Um, <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh. Wobblier and uh, eventually fell out about a month ago. So I've been living without front teeth for a month and I've just had a new false one put in temporarily. So I'm speaking a little bit strangely. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that. But it's been really interesting not having a front teeth and seeing what happens and how you get treated and what the responses are. And uh, What is that? How do you get treated? What are the responses to being a female pirate, as you've been referring to yourself? I think like if you know someone well, they'll be like, oh my God, what happened to your teeth? And want to know the story. If you know someone not so well, they won't say anything. And then they're kind of feel awkward because they know they probably should say something, but like they don't really know. Like maybe, you know, maybe you're in an abusive relationship. Like maybe you were really drunk and fell down. Like they just don't want to say anything. So they kind of like want to get away from you as quickly as possible. And then I've also met lots of new people in this month. I've been on a couple of courses and, you know, had some quite important meetings. And obviously they don't say anything either and I don't say anything. So I just kind of carried on as normal with a massive hole in the front of my mouth. I just found it quite interesting about our expectations about what our face should look like. And when it doesn't look like that, how uncomfortable it makes people. And then I went to my, my uncle's memorial party recently, which was quite a posh dinner. And there was an older lady there who I, I know quite well, but I haven't seen for ages. And she took me aside and she just said, Becky, you need to get that tooth fixed as soon as possible. And I said, I am. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just waiting for the appointment to get done. She goes, you can't walk around with a hole in your face. You just can't. You need to get it sorted out. Oh, she my was, God. <laughs> she was quite firm about it. And I think probably that's what a lot of people are thinking. But um, anyway, so that's why I'm speaking with more than a list of you than usual. <laughs> if, it, if it feels any better, like it, you sound fine. You look <laughs> fine i kind of was looking forward to we've rescheduled this a few times and i was kind of looking forward to the pirate look so please do send me a picture i promise not to share it but yeah it's interesting what you say about people's expectations of how you should look and sort of getting to suddenly see the world from a very different perspective and people looking at you differently and being very acutely aware of it wow that's uncomfortable and also you're bringing discomfort to others because you're like i don't look like you think i should look yeah, exactly. And I think it's also, you know, we, we associate you no know, teeth with kind of poverty and, you know, and things that have gone wrong, you know, because you think, well, if, you know, if you're middle class and you can afford it, you get it done straight away, you get it sorted out. So there's a kind of, there's kind of like a statement and not having it, even in that short period when you're waiting for it to happen. Yeah, people, it's been interesting. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Next one. To your actual question. Um, so, I mean, I think you alluded to it in, in the introduction, but um, for me, the, the kind of really, there was a really strong kind of moment of, I guess, waking up, but not entirely. I, I, what I'd like to call it is perhaps going over a precipice of, into a different kind of life, um, which was after I had my daughter in 2015. And I was sat there breastfeeding on the sofa for many hours, as you do, and scrolling through lots of Guardian articles, actually, to begin with. And it was actually at the time when the editor at the time was retiring. Um, his name was Alan Ruse Bridger. And I would email him one day to thank him for this. But it was his kind of final swan song to go out talking about climate change. So he put absolutely loads and loads of articles in during that time. And it was really hammering at home. And he was realigning The Guardian as a newspaper that was going to really take on climate change as, as one of their key issues. And as a result of that, they were profiling Naomi Klein's book, um, This Changes Everything, which I then read. And it did change everything. It changed the whole rest of my life since that point. I have to say, I think if I wasn't on maternity leave then, it wouldn't have happened because actually this subject is so complex, you know, not just climate change, but the whole ecological breakdown is such a broad and complex topic and I think for most people they just simply don't have the time to get their heads around it there's so much conflicting information out there there's so much you know so overwhelming in so many ways but because I was sort of 
you know, because my brain was free from work for a while, I was able to really kind of focus on this. And I did, I really did focus on it. And I guess part of that was thinking about, you know, what was going to happen when my daughter grew up? What future was she really facing? And so as a result of that, I didn't go back to my job at Best of All. I, I handed in my notice and decided that I would create my own festival, um, which took four years to actually kind of manifest because I had another child in between. So I was sort of in this really interesting period where I was juggling being a new mum and trying to launch something from scratch with no partners and no sponsorship and no funding and kind of co- trying to collect all of that together. Um, Warwick Arts Centre very early on kind of loved the idea and so were really supportive and offered me dates and a venue. Um but I still had to kind of get everything else together. And so there was many moments of discomfort along that journey in the sense that I had to, you know, it's probably the same across the world, but kind of getting a profile with the Arts Council when you're just an independent producer and trying to sort of, you know, you're not an organisation and trying to apply for money for a new project, which is unproven, is quite hard. And I've, and you know, I had three attempts before they eventually gave me some money. Um, I, you know, knocking on lots of other funders' doors, managed to get some small bits of sponsorship and at the same time trying to work out what the program was and I had this quite big vision that you know the change festival was going to be presenting you know a different future was going to be showing that that there was a different future out there and that change was possible and it's going to be celebrating the stories of people doing things differently as a way to inspire others but what I found was when I started looking was that actually the arts, and I think this is still the case, has been in many ways quite slow to pick up on this issue and there isn't as much work out there as you would think there would be, considering this is, you know, in, in Margaret Atwood's words, you know, this isn't climate change, this is everything change. You know, we're talking about shifting and evolving our whole world, our whole cultures into something, into a new existence in order to get to grips with the damage that's been done. The arts is still, like in many other sectors, it's still seen as a topic that you might cover. You know, it's like, oh, I might do a show about mental health or I might do a show about climate change or I might do a show about, you know, uh, bicycles or something. It's like it's still put into a box, whereas I guess the way I see it differently now is that I think that it's a lens in which you see the world differently. Like, that's how I feel, that through understanding the climate and ecological crisis, you have to kind of realign your whole perspective of the whole world. And it's a, I don't want to say the world lifestyle, but it's like a, it kind of penetrates everything. And what I've noticed is that I think in the arts, yeah, it's still treated as a kind of topic. So a theatre company might be like, okay, right, cool, we've done some shows about some other stuff, and now we're going to do one about plastic waste. Or now we're going to do a show about it's 2060 when all the birds are dead. So it's been quite tempting for people to jump on the dystopian offering (laughs) rather than the kind of the more nuance and the more imaginative and and the more possibility. So it was a struggle to program for the festival with the work that I felt truly carried the messages that through my kind of, you know, four years of research um, really manifested what I felt should be said through the arts. Mm, I love what you said about how it's a lens that that penetrates everything because it is so true. It's, I mean, matrix metaphors abound, but it is like you can never go back once you've got that perspective and once you understand the magnitude of change that, like you said, the Margaret Atwood quote about how it's not climate change, it's everything change. It impacts everything because everything is connected. But also I like that where you've ended up and where I've ended up is very much about an optimism because I believe in human ingenuity and the human spirit and also the regenerative ability of nature. You know, sort of we're going to lose a lot of species and we're really threatening our own existence, but the earth is kind of going to be fine. We might not be, but also then kind of swerving back into the the optimistic approach that you've chosen and the you're giving people tools to tap into their deepest creativity. And it's kind of the antidote to climate doomism because we've talked about that and sort of both of us have an aversion to that because it feels like it's just very fear-driven, panic-driven. Is there a place for that in our sort of ecosystem of activism and an agency to get everybody involved in a way that works for them. What do you think of that sort of climate doomism that we're seeing out there as somebody who's obviously taken a very different, chosen to take a very different approach to your activism? What do you think? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question because I, you know, when I first kind of came to the, the sort of the hope um, lens, I guess, when I was first looking at climate change, because to begin with, I think like everyone, you, you become terrified and you think, oh my God, this is it. You know, we are doomed. 
Um, but as I carried on researching, I realized that there was all these amazing people all around the world doing lots of incredible things. And, and that's not the big kind of shiny tech fixes. This is like this kind of network of amazing ingenuity and people just doing things differently, challenging the status quo. And that was part of what Change Festival was always about, was to try and platform those stories and tell those stories. And I remember when I first started researching about the art side of things and what stories we're going to tell. And like I mentioned, there was a lot of a lot of the response from the arts had been quite dystopian. You know, there was it's always harder to tell. It's always easier to tell a tragedy than a hopeful story. And so there was a lot of work out there like that that was quite dark. And I remember coming across it was actually the Dark Mountain Project, which kind of like lent into the darkness of this side, you know, of ecological breakdown. Talk about the Dark Mountain Project, because I don't actually know that one. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been going for a long time now. There's a lot of written work online. They've also had events. They've been going, I think, in a sense, I feel like sometimes this is like an evolution and people go through different stages as they kind of enter into it. And I think what I've seen is that in the first stage, you kind of, a lot of people like me, it's kind of like, it's great, we can fix this, it's absolutely fine. And people like the Dark Mountain Project were talking about grief ceremonies and holding the grief of it all and really feeling into the grief and the darkness. And at the beginning, I really rejected that. I was like, oh, my God, like, I don't want to, you know, put that on at the festival of like some everyone wailing and isn't this terrible and we're all doomed. It just felt too, um, it didn't feel helpful. But as time's gone on, I think... I think it's become more nuanced. So I do think there's a place for grief. I do think that I think it's really important. I think it's the opposite of love. So we have to feel the grief, you know, if we're grieving for what's happened, it means that we have a deep love for what we're losing. And that's Mm. really important. But I think that the way the press often um, picks up on ecological breakdown comes from a place of doomism because that's what gets the headlines. And so it becomes very unnuanced and it becomes very easy to just focus on one terrible bit of it and if you keep consuming that news cycle whether it's the wildfires or you know whether it's heat waves or whether it's you know another massive pollution spill or whatever it might be you end up feeling like it's really doomed and then you have to then sort of counter it by looking up good news stories but you have to kind of do the work yourself right so if you're just someone that's not as in this as we are Betsy you're just kind of going about your everyday life it's really easy to just get bombarded by the doom stories, by the doomism. And then I think it just makes people shut down. And we're in it. And I still, I mean, I can totally relate to that cycle you're talking about. And actually to the point where I've kind of evolved in a similar fashion to you in my approach. So when I do this resilience boot camp, there will be space to acknowledge our grief about what we've lost. And I think people are more familiar with that because of this pandemic we've gone through, this communal trauma We've lost a way of life and things are never going to be the same again. But two, you can't just live in the sunshine all the time. You have to be able to be comfortable with the shadowy stuff, the discomfort stuff. It's all about the discomfort practice and sitting with it in order to make it something productive. So yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. And we have to dig for the good stories too. There are some days when, frankly, I feel like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And my answer is always, because it's all I can do. I can't just not do anything. And I truly believe that something good will come of this effort because no effort is ever wasted is one of my mantras. But yeah, okay. That was a really nuanced answer. And I guess it really does point out that news stories are not the place for nuance. Entertainment is often not the place for nuance and complexity. So do you think that what people expect of entertainment has changed to the point where um, there's now a festival, change festival, that's about imagining better and really getting into some of the nuance and figuring out how to come out the other end of thinking about a climate crisis and social inequality and stuff with optimism and creativity? So have, have people changed in what they want from entertainment, do you think? Yes, they have. And the answer's broad and it's kind of gone in both directions, I think. Um, you know, the festival world in the UK is, as you said in the intro, is, is an incredible, incredible scene. And I was lucky enough to kind of be in it in a time when it was really at its boom. I think it is changing now, but it's, you know, I was literally in it in the golden years. And my job was amazing at Bestville and Camp Bestville. And I, I was lucky enough to, you know, be programming around 200 different acts every year. I had big budgets. I had loads of venues. I had woodlands to play with. You know, I had all this space and all this opportunity for creativity. And... I think the festival audiences over the years, it played into the consumer narrative. So every year the the audience would come back and, you know, we as festival producers had to kind of keep giving them more new stuff, right? So it's like, okay, so one year, you know, we had an amazing 
you know, creative stage that had fire on it. And then the next year it would have to be a bit bigger, you know, and a bit different and a bit better. And then, you know, you have with the headlining act for the music, you know, you had to always keep going for the slightly bigger act, the slightly bigger act, the slightly bigger act. It's like, where does it end? You know, it just feeds into that whole growth narrative, which we need to be challenging. And for many festivals, it becomes unsustainable because in order to keep reaching those higher goals all the time, you have to keep putting more people into the festival and more people into the festival and often those festivals kind of lost the magic of what was the original kind of DIY you know very unique culture because they all became a bit homogenized I would say there are still ones that are doing it slightly differently but some of the direction it went in was that you go to a festival field and they would have built you a city a dystopian city and I mean, now when I look back, I'm just, I mean, even at the time when I finished my career, but especially now when I look back, I'm like, what is going on that we pay all this money to go into a field where someone has built some sort of urban landscape in the field that we then go into and, you know, consume all of this entertainment and then go home back to our urban cities again. It's like, surely the whole point of being at a festival is that you are enjoying all of this incredible, you know, art and music within mm. the natural world yeah so to speak to your question about what <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting by the way I was just like yeah that's all kind of just a bit fucking weird if you think weird. about it that way it's weird but people yeah people are kind of like what's more I want more I want different I want next I want to be impressed but like for me where it's always gets really interesting and where I think festivals have a great role to play is this kind of intersection so where you can use some one kind of form or one kind of performance and bring in a different audience that wouldn't normally experience that. So if you think about like Warwick Art Centre, where we have um, Change Festival, you know, they have a theatre audience and the theatre audience come to the theatre and you can put on a theatre show and they'll come to the theatre to see the theatre show. When you're at a festival, you're kind of wide open and you will go to anything, right? So we used to have a venue at festival that which I helped create, which was called the Grand Palace of Entertainment. And it was this kind of really fun, colourful, um, silly, wacky venue that was kind of an old circus tent. And in the daytime, we had things like hip hop karaoke and silly bingo games and kind of like jokey life drawing and like it was fun and sweet and then in the evening it went into like some pretty crazy drag shows with a group called sink the pink who are now absolutely massive but we did a lot of work with them at festival before they took over london and you know so what we what we would see and being in that venue was there'd be some like 18 year old boys from the Isle of Wight, which is this island where festival was held. So, you know, probably hadn't ever clubbed in London before or, you know, particularly been out very many places. And they'd turn up at festival and they'd queue up and they'd see that there's this great fun party happening in one of the tents and they'd walk in and there'd be like these crazy drag queens on the stage, like having the time of their lives, singing their hearts out. And when they first walked in, they'd be a bit like, oh my God, you could see the look on their faces. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but they loved it. And by the time they left, they'd be like smeared in glitter and they'd be like have wigs on. And, you know, it was amazing. And I suppose what you saw then was this kind of intersection between an audience that would not normally experience that kind of performance and those performers who were then being able to perform to an audience they wouldn't normally ever have access to. And so those kind of like those moments, those kind of connections in those meeting places are where I think that the magic happened and so with Warwick Arts Centre why I was interested in working with them as a venue is they are quite a kind of traditional venue in many ways they're the biggest arts centre outside of London you know they've got a big audience you know their mailing list is like 30,000 people you know they have a classical music audience they have a family audience they have a theatre audience so when I created Change Festival I put all those elements in but the shows that I put on have an ecological kind of steering so they can promote the theatre show that I put on for Change Festival within their theatre programme. And people will be like, OK, cool, that sounds interesting. So you're kind of tapping into an audience that aren't necessarily the sustainability audience because the venue isn't known as a sustainability venue. It's not that. So it's kind of for me, it's always about how can the arts meet an audience in a way that is interesting? Because mm, it's also smack in the middle of a university, it which is. you get sort of this... I remember coming two years ago and being like, oh, yeah, there are students who might wander in. And because I remember when we were trying to figure out how to create messaging for this that would attract the right audiences and thinking through, OK, what are the audiences? Yeah. And, and trying to figure out who would come to this. And it's not a sustainability festival, but yeah, kind of trying to draw in new audiences to really important themes. But because they want to have fun and they want to enjoy the arts and they want to imagine. Yeah, it was an interesting process to be part of I really enjoyed that but is it do you think change festival can effectively reach people new audiences and sort of 
not necessarily make them into sustainability activists, but enable them to see things differently, to get involved in making a better future, whether or not they're climate warriors or not. Is that part of the ethos? And is it something that you think is possible? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the goal of putting on the festival was to try and offer those kind of small shifts in people in terms of the way they might see something slightly differently. And I think the arts, the whole point of the arts is that you're kind of bringing people into a story. Um, You're bringing people, you know, kind of immersing them in a story of something in a way that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have if they read a newspaper article or even if they just had a chat to someone. So, you know, a great example of that is there's a show called The Jungle, which was on um, at the Young Vic a few years ago. And that was kind of an immersive theatre show that was all about the migrants in Calais. And, you know, within that hour, it taught you more about the refugee crisis than anything you could have read in a book because it had characters, it had nuance, it had, you know, you felt it, you felt what it was like to be there, you felt the danger that they were in, you felt the, you know, all of the challenges that they were up against, but you also felt their their humanity, you know, them as humans, Mm. um, rather than just a statistic on a page or or an anonymous photo that you don't have a connection with. So in a sense, there's a sort of, I feel like it's like a fast track, you know, and stories have always done that. You know, you think about like the old myths, they hold so much meaning within a story that you, we used to share around a campfire. And so, yes, you know, that's kind of the hope is that someone who normally comes to Warwick Arts Centre to bring their kids to, you know, a nice family show on a Saturday will come and bring their kids to a nice family show on a Saturday, but it will happen to be part of Change Festival. And that nice family show We'll show them, one of the shows we've got on is Over Things That We're For, um, which is a show we're kind of actually producing with an orchestra called Orchestra for the Earth. We're going to be playing Beethoven's Septet throughout the show. And then we're working with a really amazing American author called Ino Santo Nogueira, who's written a book called Over Things That We're For, which is written in the style of Dr. Seuss book. And the whole book is around how children have a voice and children are allowed to be not activists in the in I mean they're allowed to be activists of course but his book is around them being positive activists so it's not that they're against things it's not like down with all this stuff it's like what are we for you know we want great health care we want equality we want climate justice so we've kind of paired these two things we've got the classical audience <laughs> hopefully who will come because it's Beethoven Septet We've got the family audience who will come, hopefully, because, you know, we're retelling an amazing children's story. And it's on a Saturday and it's appealing to an audience that would normally come. But when they do come, it will be a different experience from what you'd normally get out of a family kids show. And I'm hoping it's going to be something that will be a real conversation starter between the children and the parents, many of whom actually feel quite fearful at the moment about the role of activism and this idea that their kids might be missing school when they get to teenagers because they're going to go on strike. And it's reframing it and saying, actually, you know, these guys are as valid and have as much of a right to have a voice as you do. And here's a way that we celebrate that through this show. Oh, I love that. It also just sounds beautiful and fun. I wish I could be there. Traveling is so difficult right now, and my teaching schedule here in Barcelona will not allow me, but oh, that's beautiful, beautiful music and a great author, and I just love the idea of that. Is it going to be streamed or filmed by any chance? Probably, We probably will film it. I don't know if we'll be able to stream it, but film yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. And Ino Santos um, illustrations are totally beautiful as well, like really amazing, so we'll be projecting them as well. And we're going to be working mm. with a group of young people from Coventry He'll be creating real signs that will come onto the stage. So this is like really nice, playful kind of, you know, collection of different people coming Mm. together to kind of bring this message. Playful is such a good word because it's not something usually associated with activism. And I think it entirely should be because it doesn't always have to be serious. It doesn't have to be hard chats around the dining table or on the streets or waving placards. It can be playful. And I love that point about what do you want? What do you actually want your future to look like rather than fear of what we're losing? Because then it puts you into creative mode. So, well, I'm going to be interviewing in a few weeks a guest, Alina Siegfried, and she's just written a book about the power of storytelling and myths in being active and moving forward and tackling the climate crisis. And I think that's going to be beautifully timed to come out just before Change Festival and probably around when we air this episode. So let's talk about the role of imagination and the arts in particular, because obviously I've talked a lot on this podcast about creativity and how we're all creative, but the arts in particular, what role can the arts play in helping us to create a better future, maybe playfully? 
Yeah. So I guess I want to give an example of this because it was something really close to my heart, as I said, when I was programming Change Festival. But what I really wanted as someone that was kind of on the cusp of really like stepping into this new way of living my own life is that I was seeking out stories and and performance and anything, anything culturally that wasn't just a boring newspaper article or a nonfiction book that would kind of transport me there. Like I really was seeking that out. And I came across Jonathan Porritt's book, which he wrote in 2012 called The World Remade. And that book is really interesting. It's written a little bit like a textbook from the future. So it's a bit like a kind of, yeah, like a student almanac or a textbook. And it's got 50 chapters. And it basically talks about how the world has changed between now and 2050. So it's written as if it's 2050. And that book definitely changed my life. Like it's an incredible um, vision of what the world could be. It's not, I wouldn't say it's like, it's not a story as such, like there is a character in it. It's almost like a nonfiction book from the future. But of course, because what you're reading is actually so unfamiliar, you know, it's a work of art. It's amazing. And, you know, the vision that he pulls together is so incredibly researched. He, he kind of, he worked with different organisations, different think tanks, different, you know, scientists. And he imagined that all this amazing work that they're doing now, what would happen if all of those things worked and they all came off and they were 30 years down the line and they were all, you know, being really successful? What would our lives actually look like then? And that, for me, was such a rich experience to really feel like, what what kind of house might people be living in? You know, how will we eat differently? Like, how will our, how will we be treating medicine and our health differently? What will shipping be like? How will we fly? What will holidays be like? And he kind of lays all this out in a way that is so easy to read and so compelling. So I really wanted to include that in Change Festival. And so we ended up turning it into a play, which was an incredibly challenging experience in many ways, because I'd never produced a play before. But it was one of those situations where I was like, well, no one else is doing it. So I probably should just get on with this. And I was really lucky. To- <laughs> Thank goodness. I was really lucky to work with an amazing um, a director, a friend of mine, Sophie Austin, who actually often wears the kind of producer director hat simultaneously. So she definitely held my hand through all of this and directed it. And then we found a writer called Beth Vintoff, who is used to doing adaptations, actually. She does a lot of amazing adaptations. And this was a kind of, it was like a historical adaptation, but it was a future adaptation. <laughs> and so she used to kind of take in the essence of these often quite kind of factual stories and like thinking like what's the human you know where's the humanness in this like where's the story where's the character and so you know we did quite a lot of workshops we did quite a lot of um exploring of this and she ended up picking five characters and three of them uh, were, were based on real characters and we imagined their journey from now into the future so that was really fun because we were you know there's a lady called Pam Warhurst who set up the incredible edibles movement and you know she's a real lady I've met her she's amazing and we imagined you know her character going into the future and what that would look like and so the story ended up being set in 2050 but looking back and telling all these kind of key moments along the way but based on these five characters and what was amazing about it wasn't that we managed to shoehorn in all these you know, all these facts about the future, because we couldn't, we wanted to, we kind of wanted to really get the essence of Jonathan's book of like, oh, imagine this, we might have a personal robot that will tell you your serotonin levels each day. And we tried to like shoehorn in all these things, but it didn't really work. Because actually, what the essence of it was, is like, what is it going to be like for you and me, Betsy, and someone else, and anyone else and our friends, our family, to move into these next few years? What are we going to go through? What are going to be the challenges? Where are we going to feel the tensions? You know, where are the big weather events going to come? How are we going to respond to them? How are our lives going to change? And that's the story we told into the future. So it didn't end up being about, you know, what's the end goal? There was a little bit of that, you know, okay, it's hopefully going to be better in 2050. But it was about the journey to get there. And people responded to that so incredibly after every show we had a post-show discussion and that was almost for us as as important as the show itself like you know the lights went up and we chatted to everyone straight away and the way we staged the show was that people were facing each other so it was almost like in um in a grid system but people were facing each other so it was perfect for a discussion afterwards and those discussions were really really rich because I think for many people I think it just focused people's minds about what they might experience going forwards it's so easy to talk about the world as this huge, like, you know, big conglomerate of global systems. Mm. It's really hard sometimes for us to imagine what our journey might be 
And so by creating characters that people can relate to, or, you know, someone that you is like someone you know, you suddenly have something to kind of anchor onto. And then you're like, oh, okay, right. Now I have a way to relate to these other bigger issues that people are talking about, you know, much more tangibly. Yeah, and bringing it off the page. Because I remember I worked, I worked with Jonathan when he wrote that book in 2012, and it was quite ahead of its time, you know, sort of going to meetings with him at publishers and, and nobody really knew what to do with it in 2012. So to have seen, and to anybody who doesn't know, Jonathan Port was the Sustainable Development Commissioner in the UK under Tony Blair. And he's one of the, the giants of the movement. He's an incredible man and he's done a lot of good work and he's sort of one of the giants upon whose shoulders we stand today. But in 2012, that was so left field for people. We were just starting to wrap our heads collectively around climate change. Fast forward to now and you're helping to bring it off the page and really into people's memories, into their ability to experience it. Because it's one thing to be somebody who will pick up a book like that, but you were really bringing it to a really wide audience. And I love you're talking about how you staged it so people could have an actual conversation about it afterward. Because, yeah, I, th I think more of that, please. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about the next Change Festival because this one is focusing on Rise Up which the last one was Imagine Better, and now this journey to rise up. So why that theme? Why is that the theme we need now? And what's it going to be like? Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about when I first came up with the idea for Change Festival, which was, you know, as you know, back in 2015, and even in those four years before it actually happened, there was a tangible shift in the kind of consciousness of people around the awareness of ecological breakdown. And just before the festival took place in that same year was when, you know, Extinction Rebellion hit the streets and Greta um, Thunberg suddenly hit the headlines and Fridays for Future and the Sunrise Movement and David Attenborough documentary all happened in 2019 before the first Change Festival. So even though the festival was almost programmed by the time all that stuff happened, there was a kind of tangible shift in the awareness. And so for that year, it felt right to be saying, OK, right, there's a lot of people that are probably absolutely terrified but we can imagine a better future together. Let's really think about what that might look like. And this is a place where we're not going to be talking about, you know, carbon levels. We're not going to be showing you graphs of rising seas. We're not going to be talking about the melting ice. We're actually going to be talking about where we need to go to change and what that might feel like and look like when we get there. So this invitation to imagine better felt it felt right. And that was kind of luck, really. I guess the audience had possibly caught up a little bit by the time we put it on, because it also felt slightly ahead of its time in terms of what else is going on in the arts, because there really isn't that many other things like this going on. There aren't that many other festivals like this. In fact, very few. But even then, I think I felt from those that came to the festival, very consciously came and, and, and were ready to kind of imagine better. In some ways, I was quite surprised how uninformed people still were even though they were trying to be and they were really seeking out and I just thought wow we've got such a journey still to go actually there's still a really long way to go in terms of getting people up to speed on the all of this stuff because it is so complex and it is so huge but between 2019 and now the world has shifted again <laughs> I was like how are you going to put the, how the world has dot 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 completely yeah. changed oh my god yeah. And I think one of the things that COVID has showed us is that we are capable of huge, rapid, radical shifts overnight when we want to. So this whole kind of concept yeah. about like, what does change look like? Oh, people don't like change. We need to be slow about it. We need to do it gradually. We need to do it incrementally. It's absolutely bollocks because we've showed with COVID that if we need to, we will all like strap in and get on with it. And I'm not saying that was easy, you know, that was hard for most people in many ways. But it also we adapted, you know, we are incredibly resilient and adaptable and creative. And many people found the, the silver lining in that, you know, when you talk to people now, they're much more likely to say, do you know what, there was some good that came out of it, it was yeah. okay, it was hard, but it was okay. Well, we've and collectively learned that we can survive massive change. And it's still hard. But that doesn't mean we have to avoid it at all costs, right? Exactly. And so now I feel like whilst there's still a lot of work to do in terms of, you know, thinking about what that future might be and really exploring, you know, OK, what are we talking about here? So people don't have fear about the change. We also need to kind of like jump onto that energy of people being like, OK, cool. Right. I'm ready. I'm ready to do something. What can I do? So the Rise Up invitation is really an invitation for action. And I guess what I wanted to explore through the festival was that activism or action, as I like to call it, 
can come in many forms. And what I don't want is for people to feel like being active about trying to evolve and shift this world doesn't mean you have to be an XR protester. Yeah, you you don't have to be an activist to be active. I love yeah. that distinction. You don't have to put on the t-shirt and only no. wear socks and sandals and be vegan. No offense to vegans. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so many ways to be an activist. And that's what we're sort of celebrating through the festival. In fact, there's a show that is an amazing new theatre show that we're um, that we're putting on called Nevergreen, which is by a really wonderful young company called The Wonderful, actually. And it's their first show. And they have taken the story of Rachel Carson and her journey to sort of, you know, write Silent Spring. And Rachel's story is incredible because she was a very unlikely activist you know she was a nature lover she was a she was a botanist she was a biologist she was an expert she was a scientist she was someone who you know was immersed in the in the detail she wasn't someone to stand on the global stage but she ended up being that person because she brought to the world's attention you know the incredibly harmful use of chemicals and the effect that that has on nature and she changed the world because of it you know there's many chemicals now that are not being used because of the work that she did there's still a lot that are being used but if you talk to a lot of older environmentalists you know her work and her book silent spring was a massive massive wake-up call for them and a massive mm. point of inspiration and so this theater show is telling that story of rachel rachel as the kind of you know as, as uh. this you know as a girl that had such wonder about the natural world and how she you know reluctantly really ended up having to bear this cross and she was absolutely hounded by the chemical companies she was you know she experienced sexism she experienced huge amounts of abuse to try and um, discredit her and discredit her as a scientist and yet she still stood strong and she still did that even though she was this like lovely sweet introvert lady that did not choose that path but she accepted it when she realized that she was the one that had to carry that message oh what a beautiful reminder to audiences that you can just be doing your job and <laughs> something pushes you into doing something that changes the world and it might not be your choice even but you just can't not do it anymore i remember coming across rachel carson when i was an undergrad history major taking a seminar in the history of environmentalism and was just like whoa this is whoa, what do I do with this book? But it was sort of the beginning of my journey. I'd always been a social activist, but it really it really infused me with an understanding of how important environmentalism was in terms of just having a society that can survive. But wow, yeah, what a great play. Again, is that one going to be streamed or recorded? I hope so. <laughs> I think it will. <laughs> Excellent. I can participate from Barcelona because... Yeah, we've just got, we don't have much time left. And I'm like, oh, there's so much still left to cover. But something that I, I'm trying to bring into all of my interviews this season, I mean, what you talked about is the discomfort practice. It's inviting people to rise up and to practice discomfort together and see what productive things can come of it. Yeah. And that's obviously the whole, the whole theme of this podcast and kind of my life and my work and my teaching and yours too. So how can in this space that you've created... How can it help us to find spaces in which we don't know all the answers and maybe even disagree and can be different, but can also still be in this together? How do we have productive disagreement and still proceed and make the world and society a better place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about the work I'm doing here in Chessel, in the village where I live. As you said in the introduction, I moved here like four years ago and I've been working with Alice, who's my best friend and the owner of the estate to reimagine, you know, what we're going to do with the land here, how we're going to rethink the farming. We've got tenant farmers at the moment um, who we're working with, you know, to change what's expected of them. And as part of that journey, we've decided that we want to launch our own small community owned farm, which will grow lots of vegetables. We'll also have a small amount of meat and eggs. And then we're going to link that to a community shop. We've already got a really great shop here, but that's going to be moving to a new site and open a cafe as part of that as well. So we're going through this quite intense, full on process to create this new community owned business. Um, and we're in the early stages of it at the moment. But Alice and I have done in the process of that, I've done a huge amount of research around agriculture and farming. 
and what is the best practice and what do we want this small farm to look like and what do we want the rest of the land to look like and we've been kind of doing this now for about three years we've been going to farming conferences we've been going to farm visits we've been reading loads of books we've been talking to loads of people we've been on courses so we've kind of like these two ex-festival producers are now like stepping firmly into agriculture which has been another discomfort experience but also incredibly enlightening and sometimes really hopeful but what we've what we've learned from that is that there are some really amazing growers and farmers out there who are really trying to do things differently but there is no one right answer <laughs> and nature is our greatest teacher in this absolutely greatest teacher so yeah. you know, what is right for one farmer in one place on their land on their soil with their budget you know with their kind of knowledge and capabilities and the people they have around them is going to look very different from somewhere else and it would be madness to even expect that there would be one size fits all for our land management in the UK I mean if anyone even suggested that you'd just be like well that is ridiculous like imagine if you expected every single small farm everywhere in the UK to grow exactly the same stuff and doing exactly the same thing it's completely so whilst there's lots of best practice and there's lots of things that you think, well, you know, okay, we can learn from each other. It's so complex and so nuanced. And we've gone down a lot of rabbit holes about talking about, you know, the vegans arguing with the meat eaters. And I mean, I've been a vegetarian for nearly all my life and I'm about to launch a farm that will have meat in it. And there's a huge discomfort in that for me. But at the same time, I know that people are still eating meat. And they buy meat from our village shop at the moment. But the meat that we sell in our village shop at the moment doesn't have the highest ethical and environmental standards. And so we know we can do it better. And that's why we're doing it, because we know there's still a, a demand for it. And we hope that through offering it in a way and telling the story of how we're doing it differently, that there will be a role to play. And I will sleep better at night knowing that, you know, we've created something where those animals are well looked after rather than just othering it and saying I you know I don't want anything to do with it and I'll just pretend it's not happening it's like there's an active role for me to play in making it better even though it's not my personal choice and so I think there's a huge I just think there is no one size fits all with this stuff and we can sit with the ands rather than the ors <laughs> which so often get um yeah which is so often why people end up in disagreements and arguments I love that I didn't expect that answer of a vegetarian helping to provide and source ethically produced meat. I love that. And it's something that obviously is a strongly held belief for you and something you live very consistently. But that's a beautiful example of how we can be in the world. You don't have to agree with other people on all things in order for them not to be wrong, which I think is, I really want to be facilitating and prompting more conversations like this, where it's like, well, I'm doing something that I wouldn't do personally, but I want people to do it better. Like I'm, I wouldn't eat meat, but I want you, if you're going to eat meat, to do it in a way that I agree with. <laughs> kind of <laughs> social engineering a little bit, but I love that because obviously my first episodes in this season were with somebody who I didn't expect. We were on different sides of the vaccine decision to be vaccinated or not vaccinated. And sort of we have a conversation wrapping our heads around how can we both be right or not wrong or both not right or both not wrong? And how do we have these conversations? Because we could just become so increasingly polarized as a society and other people. It's exactly what you talk about. Just the othering allows you to dehumanize other people and then treat them badly. Yeah. But this is how we need to be talking to each other. Like, what do you disagree with, but you can still not hate somebody for? Yeah. Well, I was going to say one of our one of the farmers we're working with is a climate change denier as well. Oh. You know, and we talk openly with him about climate change and he disagrees that it's man-made. He agrees it's happening. He doesn't agree it's man-made and he doesn't think we need to do anything about it. But where we meet with him is on, on biodiversity and nature. So there's so many, you know, we can say that often what's good for the climate is also good for nature right so there's yeah. a few sticky bits which i won't get into because they're a bit technical but there are <laughs> but there's lots of places where you can meet in terms of the goals of the way he farms and what we're trying to do in mm. the community and that's the other thing is that you know moving to a small community like this especially one where the rents are really affordable means that there's a huge mix of different people mm. here there's different opinions there's different politics there's different ages there's people that have lived here rurally for a very long time there's people that have moved down from cities there's a, there's it's quite a melting pot and mm. so there's a balancing act to be had in terms of I'm not surrounded by I am surrounded by a lot of like-minded people but not exclusively 
<laughs> so yeah, you always have to think about what other people's values are and why they might see the world differently from you. Well, what a privilege as well to be surrounded by people who think differently. And I know it's hard to think of it that way sometimes when you're like, you think what? But this is partly what I love about city life is you can find anyone in a city. So rural life, particularly when it's sort of a an experimental sustainability bubble, it is often the preserve of, let's just say it, privilege. You have to be fairly yeah. middle class to decide to eat vegan because you can afford to buy organic or whatever. And it's just great to be hearing that you have to navigate these real world tensions where if we're talking about creating systems in a society that work for everyone, you can't really be created in a little bubble of sort of homogeneous worldviews and socioeconomic status. And that's not going to be a system that's going to work for everybody. So you're actually getting to experiment with it in the real world. I love that. I'm sure it doesn't always feel great, but the discomfort, <laughs> yeah, the tensions that you must navigate. I love that. So finally, just how can people find you? How can people find out about Change Festival, more about Chettle, more about you? Where can they find you? Yeah, so um, Change Festival is www.changefestival.org and you can get in touch with me on there in the contacts page. And uh, Chessel, we're quite, um, we're quite shy at the moment, but there's a brilliant Instagram you can follow, which is at Chessel Village. So check us out on there. And that's C-H-E-T-T-L-E, right? Village. Okay. I love it that you're shy. It's a little shy social experiment out there. Well, I mean, we often get asked if we've got a, if we've got a website, but it's kind of, yeah, it's such an emerging project and there's so many aspects mm. to it. It is the absolute embodiment of the word holistic. <laughs> it's yeah. like doing so many things at once. I was about to say, is that, is that code for it takes over your life? <laughs> it's much. code for it takes over its life and it's code for it's kind of thinking about every single thing you might ever think you need to consider you have to consider here in this village <laughs> yeah it's messy it's real lifey messy. <laughs> yeah well to anybody listening there is now a lot of online stuff that you can take part in with change festival wherever in the world you are because i know a lot of the audience here is australia us i seem to have some in brazil greece shout out to my greek listeners whoever you are i love you but this is the beauty of the pandemic. It's given us this online hybrid everything. So please do check out the festival. Obviously, I would love for people to come to. My sessions are going to be donation-based online on Bootcamp on Resilience. So whether you're an activist or just active, whatever you think you are, and the one on leadership is going to be really beautiful. So check nice. those out check out the instagram because change festivals on instagram as well it is yeah all the links are from on the website so you yeah. can get to our social media from there so find out more get involved come visit us take part and be part of the conversation and becky it's just been a pleasure it's always a pleasure to catch up with you to work with you to see what you're creating it never stops you're always moving forward thinking creating things and it's just beautiful to get to follow in your wake so thank you for your time this morning i'm really looking forward to change festival thank you so much it's been great to speak to you this morning and um yeah look forward to hearing more of your wonderful podcasts as well oh, onward thank you thanks for getting uncomfortable with me if you enjoyed this podcast leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the discomfort practice patreon page for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Thank you.